When I was growing up in our local church in Gundawindi in the 1970s, uh, that was an era when some bold moves were being made by some churches to introduce some more modern contemporary music in, into their services. Uh, up until then, the church music had pretty much stayed the same since the 1800s or the 1700s or maybe even earlier. But now there were these things called choruses that were beginning to make their way into some churches and my, oh my, didn't that cause a ruckus. Uh, when the scripture and song Brown Book came out and then the Blue Book, products of the renewal movement of New Zealand of all places, uh, and then the revolutionary Yellow Book, wow, didn't that invigorate worship? And if you didn't live through that era, then you'd probably find it quite difficult to believe the angst and the arguments that some churches had over hymns versus choruses, pianos versus organs. And we found that in our church meetings, we're addressing profoundly spiritual questions like, could the piano be played for hymns? Or could that just be played playing for choruses and we had to use the organ for hymns? Um, and guitars, did guitars have a place in church? And drums, drums aren't musical instruments, that's how Africans worship the devil. And, and in our little church, I remember the elders in the parish council decided that they would allow us to have 15 minutes of choruses before the church service proper began. And, um, and I overheard one older fella saying, well, I won't be coming early for church, I'm not coming along to listen to no hillbillies. And um, yeah interesting times and um, so you younger folk don't know how lucky you are that this was pretty much all sorted out uh, back when I was a kid and now we can have more modern music in church what's that you say you want to start introducing a few heavy metal worship songs are you crazy that's never going to happen we're all the same aren't we uh, we tend to think that, okay, the style of music that I want is, is what we need. Uh, in the modern church, we very often equate worship with music. And we equate spiritual worship with music that engages me. And we feel if the music isn't touching me, then God isn't touching me. And if the music isn't doing it for me, well, that obviously means that church isn't spiritual because I'm not engaging with God. Now, that's a picture of how shallow worship can become for us. And many people equate good worship with a professional concert-like experience. But is that what worship is all about? Or is worship more than music? Is it more than a song, as that song just said? Is it prayer? Is it praise? Is it reading from the Bible? Is it actually being taught from the Bible? What is real worship? And if it's so tied up with good music, can a deaf person worship? And that's not an academic question for me. If you ask Robin, she'll tell you that I'm getting deafer by the day. Jesus said in John chapter 4, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Does anyone here want to be a true worshipper? Oh, good, three of you do. Excellent. I'll ask you, do any of you want to be a true worshipper? Hey, good, that's better. More than half of you this time. So 
It's pretty important, don't you think, that, that we learn to know then what it means to worship God in spirit and truth, because that's what it takes for us to be a true worshipper. Well, the truth part's easy. So if you're the half that, that wanted to be a true worshipper, where you can listen in and learn from this, and the other half, well, listen anyway. Okay, the truth part's easy. Worship must begin with Jesus Christ, because he is the truth. And the God we worship is the one true God who's revealed in the scriptures. It, it, it's not some kind of image of God that we like to try and conjure up for ourselves. So many times I've heard people say, I like to think that God is like, and then they paint a picture for me of what this God is that they would like to worship. And so they've designed a God for themselves. It seems we, we live in the age of designer gods. You just make the one that you want. And, but it's, no, it's not a real God at all. And it's every bit as much idolatry as if they've carved an idol out of wood or out of stone. The one true God is revealed to us in the scriptures. But to worship in truth also means that we shouldn't be false in our worship. Don't pretend to be happy if you're sad. You know, some people think, if I'm going to worship God, I have to be filled with joy. I've been to a few worship leaders training things, and, the, and basically what, often what they teach is, if you're going to be leading worship, if, no matter how cruddy you're feeling, when you get up there on stage, you have to be bouncy and happy. And, 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 and they say, it's not faking it, you, you, it's faithing it. You faith it, don't fake it. And I'm thinking, no, I'm sorry, I can't see the difference. God wants us to be real in our worship. And you can read Psalms and Lamentations, how people in the pit of despair worship God. Don't tell God you love him unless you really do love him. Don't sing a song of commitment or pray a prayer of commitment unless you are truly committing yourself wholly and completely to God. Be true in your worship. I reckon God gets tired of a spiritual persona that isn't real. It's like when you put your church clothes on to come to church, you also put on a different you. The religious you, the spiritual you, the you that isn't cranky at your wife, the you that doesn't hate your boss, the you who doesn't swear, and the you who is just the all-round nice man or lady. You become a different person just for a few hours on a Sunday. Don't be false with God. You do realise that every time we present a false image of ourselves, he can see right through it. You, you do realise that, hey, it's pretty pointless putting on a false image for God. So what does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? What is this real worship? Well, Paul tells us this right now. Right up until this point in Romans, he's been explaining to us the depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace the mercy, the power of God to save, the adoption as God's sons. He's been explaining faith and how God foreknew us, how God chose us, how God saves us. And last week we heard about how we've all been disobedient. Israel has been disobedient. The Gentiles have been disobedient. And so we've all been disobedient. None of us earn this salvation. And so we all depend completely on God's mercy. Every one of us. And in the light of this, in view of this mercy of God, Paul says, I appeal to you, I appeal to you to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There it is there. That's what worship is. And when I was preparing for this message, I noticed the different versions of the Bible translated the end of that sentence quite differently to each other. The English Standard Version, which we read this morning, says, which is your spiritual worship. The King James Version, though, says, which is your reasonable worship. The Young's Literal Translation says, your intelligent service. The NIV says, this is your spiritual act of worship, but then it has a little footnote and says, but you could translate it this way, which says, this is your reasonable act of worship. And then the new NIV, did you know that? NIV stands for New International Version, but now they've put out a new version of it, but they still call it the NIV. But the new one, it says, this is your true and proper worship. Now, there's some pretty big differences there about in words. Why do they vary so much? And so I went back to the Greek to, to see what it actually says in the Greek, and I was expecting to see the word pneuma, which means spirit, but the word pneuma wasn't there. Instead, I found the word logicane, um, and it stems from the word logos. You've heard of the logos. Jesus says, I am the word, the logos. It means word or knowledge, but I'd never seen this word logicane before, and so I looked up some Greek dictionaries, and I learned more about this word, which only appears in the Bible twice, by the way, once here and once in one of Peter's letters. And I realised Paul had found a word which brings spirit and truth together. Remember Jesus said, if you want to be a true worshipper, you have to worship in spirit and truth. Well, this word logic cane brings these two words together because it means intellectual, rational, reasonable, true. But the Greek philosophers had began to see this intellectual truth which was something of spiritual significance. And so whenever they used the word logicane, it came to imply spiritual. And so it can imply spiritual and truth. And so it brings the two words together. True worshippers worship in spirit and truth. This is your spiritual worship. This is your true worship. This is your proper worship right here. To present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Right back in chapter 1, Paul painted a picture of the downward spiral of a world that had rejected God. And it was a picture of false worship and a corrupted mind. But now, by the mercy of God, for the disciples of Jesus Christ... That's all been reversed. It's all been turned around. And Christian worship is reasonable worship. It's, it's true worship, proper worship, spiritual worship, and it's made possible through a renewed mind. So what is true spiritual worship? To present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So we could go to church somewhere and have what we feel to be the most amazing worship experience and yet God might hate it. If it doesn't flow from an inner holiness 
and an outlived righteousness. If our worship does not flow from an inner holiness and an outlived righteousness, it may not be worship at all. And that's nothing new. God has always grown tired of his people putting on an act of worship. No matter how real we may feel it is, worship is only an act. Worship is only pretend if it doesn't flow from holiness. There once was a time when God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1, he says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, right? These were all of their significant worship events that they are having in Israel. And God says about these things, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, that's their worship events, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Imagine if God said that to us about our worship services. How would you feel? I'm tired of them. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. You see, God hates it. A solemn assembly coming to worship. God hates it when we tell him how much we love him. But in our everyday lives, we're filled with iniquity. And we don't show love for others. When we don't seek justice. When we don't care for the oppressed. Or for widows. Or for the fatherless. The kind of worship God wants is holiness and righteousness. God wants us to care for the oppressed. He wants us to care for the least in society. He wants us to watch out for those who have no voice and speak up for them. He wants us to care for the widow and the fatherless. Did you get this? As disciples of Jesus, this is our worship. As disciples of Jesus, we should be living very differently to the rest of the world. The ever-present temptation for Christians 
is to be conformed to the world. That means just to fit in. And the world hates it when anybody doesn't conform. And all the world wants of you and all the world wants of me is just to be like them. And so your mates might go out on the weekend to get drunk and they just want you to come along and do the same. The world in its work, it pursues financial security and a plump nest egg for retirement. And that's all they want us to do as well. They want that to be everybody's priority. The world places very high value on health, wealth and a long life. And even though God's priorities are very different to this, we find it very easy to just conform to what the world has in mind. The world has decided that an unborn baby has no right to live if it inconveniences its mother. And the world wants you to be okay with that. It wants you to conform and and it won't allow any dissension on the matter. So now in many states of Australia, it's illegal to even speak against abortion if you're anywhere within a certain distance of a clinic. The world is in the process of changing the definition of marriage and it just wants everyone to conform. It's like you're not even entitled to have a different view. But we are commanded here in all areas of life, do not be conformed to the world. True worship, spiritual worship, is holiness. And how is that expressed? Well, one way our holiness is expressed is by not being conformed to the world. Paul says, I appeal to you. Now, that's an exhortation. And when he says, do not be conformed, well, that's an imperative. That's like saying, you must not be conformed. It's not an option. He's not saying, well, you may not be conformed, or God may stop you from being conformed. It's an imperative. You must not be conformed to this world. Then he goes on, but be transformed. That's another imperative. You must be transformed. Now, before we were saved, we were caught up in this downward spiral of the world. In some measure, you were conformed to the world. And even now, in some measure, we may be conformed to the world. And it may at the time have seemed all very normal and fitting and right, and it didn't really seem to matter so much, but not anymore. Because we must be transformed to see things through God's eyes, eyes of holiness and eyes of love. We've got to remember God's holiness isn't always just a hard, I'm against everything. It's also eyes of love. Now, this kind of transformation, that that is a radical transformation. I'm really glad Joy had that kid's story for us today because the Greek word used when he says be transformed this is the Greek word metamorphosthai have you heard that word before sounds very much like metamorphosis and that's exactly where that word comes from 
That, that it's basically the same word and it basically means the same thing. This is a radical change. For us to be transformed, to become like God, is just as radical as, as for a grub to be transformed, to become a butterfly. And the world wants us to remain as a grub. That's what it means to, to be conformed. But God wants to transform us into a thing of beauty, into his holiness and into his love. So how are we transformed? How do we make this radical shift from being conformed to the world to being transformed? How do I become this living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God? Well, first of all, we have to agree with God that his way is right. And that requires a change in thinking. It requires a shift in the mind. Even though we're saved, we are still very much influenced by the thinking of the world. Does anyone think they've escaped being influenced by the thinking of the world? If so, you've done better than me. Either that or you're very filled with pride. Um, even though we're saved, we can still be very much influenced by the thinking of the world. And for us to make headway, for us to grow in holiness, our mind has to go through this thing called renewal. My mind needs to be changed to become more like God's. And if I'm having trouble seeing things from God's perspective, maybe I need to give to him my mind and let him renew my mind. I believe the trouble is, for many of us, our minds are the last part that we submit to God. Now, I don't know why that is. Maybe we're afraid. Maybe we're afraid of losing our minds. You know, the last thing we want is, well, the world, the other people are going to think I'm one of those religious nuts. You know, oh, one of those mindless, crazy religious people. The Lord doesn't want you to lose your mind. He wants to renew your mind. And a renewed mind is better and more holy than the most brilliant worldly mind that you could ever come across. He wants to shift our way of thinking to become more like his thinking. He wants to take our feelings and make them to become like his feelings. And he won't do it unless we let him. If I'm having trouble with transformation, if I'm having trouble seeing things from God's perspective, maybe my mind isn't being renewed. Maybe it's too caught in the rut of worldly thinking. Now, there's lots of big moral and social issues that people who claim to be Christians disagree on. You've seen this, hey? Big, wide range in, in areas of what Christians believe. So some might say, war is always wrong. And they're very strong pacifists. That no, Christians should never, ever go to war. Whereas others would say, no, no, war is right. Sometimes it is God's will for us to go to war. Some might say, when it comes to abortion, it should all be about a mother's right to a choose. And, and others would say, no, abortion is murder, and that's the end of the matter. It's wrong. 
Some might say it's okay for Christians to date and marry non-Christians. Others would say, no, you shouldn't even consider it. Some might say homosexual relationships are a gift from God. Others would say, no, it's an abomination. Some might say the death penalty is wrong. Others would say, no, that's actually part of God's design for justice. There is such, and you could bring up just about any issue, and, and, and you'll find that different Christians will have different perspectives on it. And, and some of these are pretty big and major issues. Now, the fact that Christians don't agree, does that mean that God's mixed up? Or does it mean that God doesn't reveal his way to us anymore? Does that just mean that, well, maybe we've just got to do our best we can just to figure out what is right and what's wrong? No, I'll tell you what it means. It means that some are not rightly discerning the will of God. Because their minds are not being renewed. And I'm going to put my hand up at this point and say, and I know that I don't always rightly discern the will of God. I know that sometimes I get it wrong. And so my prayer is that God would continue to work in my heart and change my heart to become more like his heart so that I would understand not only what's right and wrong, but that I would also my heart would be changed to have the same capacity to love as God has so that I won't only reflect God in knowledge but in the way that this is expressed. And that should be the same for all of us because this is a constant changing. Douglas Moo says, Christians are to adjust their way of thinking about everything in accordance with the newness of their life in the spirit. This reprogramming of the mind does not take place overnight, but is a lifelong process by which our way of thinking is to resemble more and more the way God wants us to think. You see, to be transformed is something that only God can do as he renews our minds. Did you notice there he didn't say, transform yourself? He says, be transformed. Right? So this is something that only God can do. We can't transform ourselves, but we do have a part to play in this. That's why it's a command. That's why he can say to us, be transformed. See, we've got to want it, and we've got to work at it, and it's not going to happen overnight. So it begins with a renewal of the mind, and we begin seeing things from God's perspective. And then we can discern what God's will is. But in the Greek, that word discern, it also means agree. It's all very good and nice to hear and know what God's will is. It's another matter entirely to agree with him. And so we then have to let God's will reign in our lives. And we agree that God's way is good and acceptable and perfect. That's when we actually embrace God's way and live God's way. 
So that's worship, being holy and transformed, caring for others as God cares for them, agreeing that his way is good, acceptable and perfect and living by his way. And when we are living sacrifices, that's when our times of coming together for worship are really special. Did you notice in that Old Testament reading from Isaiah that I read before, he wasn't actually saying, I hate it when you worship. What he was saying is, I hate the way you are when you worship. The Lord loves it when we worship him, but he wants us to be worshipping him from a place of holiness. So worship isn't only done when we come to church. It's, it's done in the very way that we live out our lives. But then there's something very special about when all of us, all of us living sacrifices come together to worship God together. So don't ever get it into your head that you don't need to come to worship. Um, and we're going to hear more about that next week as, as Paul now starts talking about how we should live together as the body of Christ. And over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to see what this sacrificial living looks like. Up until now in Romans, we've been learning about salvation, about how you can be saved and about what being saved means. But now we've hit the point where the rubber hits the road for those who are already Christians. We've come to the point where we're learning how because I'm a Christian, because I'm a disciple of Jesus, this therefore is how I shall live. This is how I live as a living sacrifice. And we're going to see that unfold over the next few weeks.